Good morning. If you're new to Faith Bible Church, I'm Pastor Steve, and we are currently looking at the book of Matthew and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11 as we will look from Matthew 11, verse 20, down through verse 30. We have noted that in this book of Matthew, the human author of the book, the Apostle Matthew, is showing that Jesus is the Messiah. This one that had been promised clear back in 2 Samuel 7 by God that his descendant will sit on David's throne forever and ever over a kingdom of righteousness. And Matthew is showing that Jesus is indeed this promised one, this anointed one, this Christ. We saw in chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, Jesus, a record of Jesus' early ministry. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, Matthew records that John the Baptist was arrested. So Jesus goes into the Israelite region of Galilee, centers out of a town called Capernaum where he preaches, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 17, where he teaches, where we, which we saw in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and where he did great miracles, which we saw in chapter 8. Chapters 9 and 10 record for us the commissioning of the 12 as Jesus sent out the 12 apostles to be his representatives carrying on his work. He also taught about what it means to be a disciple, what the cost is of being a Jesus follower. Well, today as we've come now to chapters 11, 12, and 13, we come to three chapters that detail rejection. And Jesus is going to show that the nation Israel, as a nation, stand in rejection of him. They do not accept that he is their Messiah. And in that rejection, Jesus is going to publicly denounce three cities. All three of these cities are Galilean cities. They're Israelite cities. And these three cities have had a lot of revelation. Jesus has shown himself to them. More than other places. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see a couple of interesting truths. One, that the nation, as a nation, has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But two, we're going to see that the greater light that a person has received, the more revelation of the person of Jesus Christ that one has received, the greater punishment they will receive if they reject that truth. That's a sobering truth. Yesterday morning, about 11 o'clock, one, uh, uh, one of our faithful, godly men here at Faith Bible Church passed on and went to be with Jesus, Jack Chia. And this morning I came into my office and I had a whole file in my office uh, from Jack's wife, Jean, who wanted to make sure that I did her funeral right. 
And so I have all kinds of notes of what Jean wants in her funeral. And in my notes, I read that as Jean, uh, about age 13, came to faith in Jesus, she and the man who would one day be her husband, Jack, were in the same church. And when they got married, they made a commitment that the gospel... The good news of Jesus would be central in their home and they would make sure that each of their children heard the gospel and had an opportunity to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And that was so special for me just to read that this morning, be reminded of that this morning of the centrality of Jesus Christ in their marriage and the centrality of the gospel. The good news that Jesus is God. And as the second person of the Trinity, in obedience to the Father, came to earth and was born of a virgin so that as 100% God, 100% man, he would be able to live a sinless life here on this earth and then die. Die for you and for me taking all the penalty for our sin upon himself as our substitute. And then he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God. And that when a person transfers their dependence of their life from their self, thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good person, I can, I'll be okay, takes their dependence off of themselves and puts their dependence onto the person of Jesus Christ, Believing that he is the only way to have a right relationship with God. Believing that he is God who died for me and rose again. At that point, a person becomes a Christian. And at that point, Jesus' payment for sin is credited to that individual's life. And we're going to see today that even though Israel as a nation has rejected Jesus at this point. Jesus still issues a call to individuals to come to him, to receive him, to come to him and experience rest for their souls. I'm going to read these verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Starting in Matthew chapter 11 verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, you would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have, to, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way as, yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here Jesus talks about finding rest. Oh, we can all identify with the need for rest, right? I'm actually kind of feeling like I need some rest. And we have some vacation planned in June. Uh, Pastor Chris alluded to it on the video. We're going to go to the Netherlands and see our adult children who are living there for work. But there's part of me, and I told my wife recently, there's part of me that's a little sad that we are using our vacation time that way because it's maybe not going to be as restful as going to one of my favorite places to rest. And that is on the outer banks of North Carolina, on Ocracoke Island. I like it there because there's very few people there. In fact, it's a three-hour ferry ride to get out to the island. It's 16 miles long, one mile wide. Only a mile of it is inhabited, and the other 15 miles are national park. It's just you and the Atlantic Ocean. And my favorite thing to do is in the early morning, right when the sun comes up, or in the evening, right before sunset, just to go walk along the ocean. And most times... I won't see a soul, just all by yourself. No buildings, no people, just the beach and the Atlantic Ocean. Serenity. Now, I love going to an idyllic place like that, but you all know and I know that just being in an idyllic setting doesn't always equal rest, right? Why? Life. I mean, we can be in the most pristine of settings and life. I can remember we were spending a couple weeks at a lake house in Minnesota when our kids were young and I was just all worked up about stuff and I wasn't relaxing at all. And my middle son was lying in a hammock, swinging back and forth, humming. Just made me mad. (laughs) And I looked at him and said, Ethan, what do you worry about? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. (laughs) The older we get, it just life just keeps hitting us and hitting us. And all of a sudden we've got responsibilities at work and we've got financial obligations and we've got health issues and we've got family issues and so much stuff and in our minds if we could just find an idyllic setting plus no issues then that would equal rest sounds like a great formula doesn't it an idyllic setting with nothing going on in our lives, going on in our lives, 
That's got to equal rest. Now, what's the problem? Hardly ever happens, right? One of my mentors used to say, we spend our entire life either at the beginning of a very dark, long tunnel or in the middle of a tunnel where we don't see any light at the end or maybe getting toward the end of a tunnel but we're still in the tunnel but we can see a little glimpse of light and just for a little period of time we're out in the sunshine and everything's going great and then we start another tunnel again and that's pretty true so if we're waiting for an idyllic setting plus nothing quote unquote bad going on in our lives to equal rest we're not going to have much rest and Jesus message here is to some people who are burdened weighed down And he has a message to them that they can find rest. It's not in a place. And it's not in a set of circumstances. It's in a person. And that's what his message is today. Now the first half of his message is sobering. It's sobering because it is so true and probably true even for someone who's here this morning and if you fit into the category of what Jesus is talking about meaning someone who knows a lot about him but you still have not put your trust in him then His message is very much for you today. And Jesus' message is one of hope. But it's also one that requires us to take note. To pause. To really think about what he's saying. Because the first half of it. It's sobering. Because Jesus is saying, the more you know about him and reject it, the greater punishment that person will face in eternity. He begins in verses 20 through 24 with just that message that there'll be greater punishment in the final judgment for those who had greater opportunity to hear God's word and rejected it he begins by denouncing three Israelite cities and the word denounce in verse 20 is a kind of an emotion packed word it it kind of carries the idea of Anger, but righteous anger, but anger. Verse 20 is a major turning point in this book of Matthew. Some Bible teachers have even said there should be a big line between verse 19 and verse 20. And it's not 
that's not apparent to us upon first reading. But if you look through and read the the uh, verses through at one sitting, we see that there is a major turning point here. And Matthew uses some particular words to show us that turning point. Verse 20, he said, then he began. And when he, when Matthew uses that transition word, then he began, it marks a change in the direction of the book. Also note, there's a past tense verb in the end of verse 20, when it says, to denounce the cities where most of his miracles were done. Past tense. Meaning he's not doing them there anymore. So Jesus now is going to make a very public statement. That Israel as a nation has rejected him. And he's going to move his ministry out of just being contained in this region of Galilee. And portraying this rejection, he singles out three cities. They're listed here for us. Verse 21, Chorazin, which is about from archaeological digs, most likely about two miles northwest of the town Capernaum where he centered his ministry. And then the city Bethsaida, verse 21, which is probably the Bethsaida recorded for us in John chapter 1, verse 44, the home of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. And Jesus turns to these two cities and has a message for them. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He has a similar message right down in verse 23 for Capernaum, the town where he centered his ministry. And he says as well to Capernaum, you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? And in that, there's just a little glimpse of what the issue is. It's their pride. They think they're right with God. They think that they already have a path to God established by what they do. But they stand in rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to them, woe to you, Capernaum. You think you're right with God. You think you've got a pathway established to heaven. But in reality, you're going to Hades, the place of the dead. And he tells them, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, we know Sodom, that wicked city of Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah of the Old Testament. If the miracles had happened in Sodom, that happened in, happened with you, Capernaum, Sodom would still be there today because they would have repented too. So what Jesus is doing is comparing three Israelite cities with three Gentile cities. And he's saying this, you Israelite cities have had more light, more revelation of myself than anybody else. And you're rejecting it. If these Gentile cities over here would have had as much revealed about me to them as was revealed to you. They would have repented. They would have put on sackcloth, which is that rough cloth made out of camel's hair. And they would have dumped ashes.
lashes on themselves is an outward sign of a broken heart, an outward sign of contrition, repentance. But no, in your pride, you stand in rejection of all of the revelation that Jesus gave them. Look at Jesus' message to them. He says to them in verse 22, It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Down at verse 24. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And I think... The day of judgment referred to here is the great white throne judgment we know of in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. It's the final judgment. And Jesus is saying the more light a person has received, the more revelation a person has received, the more the opportunity that one has had to hear about Jesus, the greater the punishment they will receive if they reject that truth. And that is sobering. Here at Faith Bible Church, years ago, we used to use a parenting curriculum in some of our small groups called Growing Kids God's Way. And my wife and I found it valuable. There were some things that were really good. There's some things that weren't so good, but there was some good stuff like things like couch time when dad and mom finally have an opportunity to be home. It's okay for the kids to know that they can't interrupt dad and mom for a little while. We just want to sit down together and talk about our day and it's not okay for you to interrupt us. And it's actually really cool because it builds a sense of a wellness in the lives of the children because they say, hey, mom and dad want to be together. Mom and dad have a relationship. It actually is a good thing for them to see that. Another thing I loved was the interrupt rule. If dad or mom is talking to another adult and the child desperately wants their attention, you teach them just to lay your hand on my arm. Hey, I'm trying to get your attention. And then the parent takes their hand and lays it on their hand saying, yeah, I know you're there, but I'm going to finish this conversation and I will get to you momentarily. Great rule. One of the best things we learned from that was a little, a little grid for knowing how to discipline your children. Kids think that mom and dad loves discipline. Parents know, it's just kind of a secret, kids, but we hate to discipline you. It's not fun at all. It's not fun. Even though you kids think it's fun, it's not. And we need help. How do we do this? And they made a great distinction in how to discipline our children. They made a distinction between disobedience because of immaturity... And disobedience that is a result of willful disobedience. So disobedience out of immaturity. Immaturity. I tell one of my boys, hey man, your room looks like a tornado hit it. Go pick it up. 
And that child's on the way to pick up his room only to see that his brothers have just taken out all of the Playmobil stuff and it's looking good. And on his way to his room, he realizes, hey, they've got Playmobil. And it totally slips his mind that he's supposed to go clean his room. And he just goes in and starts playing Playmobil. He had every intention of going to pick up his room. But that lure of the Playmobil just sucked him right in. He disobeyed. But it wasn't really willful disobedience. It was just immaturity. He got sidetracked. Willful disobedience, his mom or dad says to that child, go pick up that room. And the child says, you bet, I'll do that. Inside knowing, there's no way I'm going to pick up my room because I don't want to. And I don't want to because I don't want to. And I'm in charge and you're not. And when I get around to it, I'll do it when I want to do it. But right now I don't want to do it. That's willful disobedience. And the point is this, discipline for willful disobedience needs to be greater than discipline for immaturity. And that's a very similar message to what Jesus is saying here. There's greater discipline, there's greater punishment for the person who has had So much truth shared with them. And says no. That's sobering. In fact. D.A. Carson. Who's a very well renowned. Professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. In Metro Chicago. Wrote this. Implications. For Western. English speaking Christianity today. Are sobering. And what he means by that is this. We have so much truth available to us. You want a Bible? Depending on where you live, you can get on Amazon and have it delivered the same day. You can get on your iPad, your laptop, your desktop, have scripture right in front of you. You can Google, why did Jesus have to die and get an answer immediately. You can go to a hotel and have a Bible in your nightstand. Even kids still at school have an opportunity to get a Gideon Bible. We can turn on and hear the gospel on our television, on our radio, on the internet, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have all of that. But if we push it away and say, I don't want it, Jesus here His message here is saying this. That person faces greater punishment in eternity than the person who never put their trust in Jesus but did not have that level of light. Now, a person could simply say, well, then why do we do missions? Or why do I, why should I even talk to my friend about Jesus? It'd be better if they don't know. See the wheels turning. Well, that's not right either. Because the Bible is very clear. Regardless if a person has all kinds of information about Jesus Christ. Or 
a person is in the remotest jungles of Papua New Guinea. Apart from one putting his or her faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That person will spend eternity separated from God. And there's two major New Testament passages that teach just that. I want to look at them both. The first is Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, we see that no person is without excuse for not putting their trust in Jesus. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the Apostle Paul is saying, a person should be able to just look at this creative work that God has done and know that there is a God. I used to have honeybees. I can't imagine there being such a thing as an atheist beekeeper as you see the intricacies of what happens inside of that beehive and how those honeybees communicate the location of flower-bearing plants and where they can get nectar. I can't imagine there being an atheist. And what Paul is saying is this. If a person, even in the remotest areas of Irian Jaya or Papua New Guinea, looks and says there must be a God because of the intricacies of this creative work. If that person starts to seek after God, I think what Paul is saying is God will bring further revelation to them. But people push away the revelation that they have. There's another set of verses that show that everyone who chooses not to believe in Jesus whether they've heard of him or not, is going to spend an eternity separated from God in what the New Testament calls hell is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Two key passages of scripture. The second one is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution. And there's two groups of people here. Listen. Retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
Two groups of people. The first group is those who do not know God. That's a very general generalization. That could be the person who's never even heard of Jesus, but they've pushed away the revelation that they've had, as Romans 1 says, so that they are without excuse. The second group of people are those who do not obey the gospel. Those are the ones who have actually heard the good news of Jesus Christ and say, I don't want that. What Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 11 is that the person who has had more revelation, that person who pushes away truth will suffer a greater penalty in in their eternal separation from God than the person who did not have as much revelation. And that's sobering. In these verses are especially applicable to us in this room if there's even one person today that you know that Jesus is God and he died for you and rose again and yet you still are not trusting in him. You're still trying to somehow think that you can, you're can. you a good enough person you don't need Jesus. If you're in that category today, these verses are for you. Because these verses are an encouragement to you that your future is not bright apart from Jesus Christ. You know, putting one's trust in Jesus is as simple as coming to him just in the quietness of your own heart. And you can simply say, God, I know I've sinned. I know I deserve separation from you. And I know I can't fix it. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus went to that cross for my sin. And he died for me. And rose again from the dead. And I'm putting my trust in you right now. Confessing our sin. Putting our trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing that he is God who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And actually putting our dependence on him. Transferring that dependence of our life from myself to him. Putting my faith in him. My belief in him. My trust in him. That he is the only pathway to being in right relationship with God. And that can be done right now. And I would encourage you. If you know you're in that category. These verses are sobering. And I encourage you today to put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, the people of Israel here as a nation have rejected Jesus. And yet Jesus, in laying that out and showing their rejection, also has a message of hope. And his message of hope is here in verses 25 through 28. Because it's an invitation to believe. And he's, he knows as a nation they've rejected him, but he's looking to individuals and says, are you tired? Are you weary of never really knowing how much is enough? I mean, if a person is trying to be good enough to earn merit with God, how much is enough? Are you tired of not knowing the answer to that? Are you tired of not knowing what's going to happen to you after you die? Jesus here in these verses has a message of hope. 
He begins in verses 25 through 27 with a prayer. And he says, Father, thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And by that, he's not saying that God is unjust. He's saying that God has exercised judgment against those who've had truth shared with them and reject it. They think they're wise. They think that they are intelligent. They think they're right with God. And they've pushed away revelation. Instead, who does God reveal himself to? He's revealed them to the infants. And he's not talking about babies here. He's talking about those who know they're broken. Those who know that they're not right with God. Those who come to him humbly. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, said there's a bunch of people on this wide road. They all think they're right with God. But to get to God, you're not going to get there on the wide path, the one by, hey, look at everything good I do. You're going to get there through the narrow gate, through Jesus himself. The one who says, unless you have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, you're not good enough, which everybody would say, who can? How much is enough? And so Jesus says in verses 28, 29, and 30, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation to faith. And he's talking here um, foremost of foremost of all to in the original audience to Israelites who are under the impression of their spiritual leaders. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks about the weight that the religious leaders put on the people. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, Do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and don't do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And what the Pharisees and the scribes did is they took the Old Testament law and they kept adding to it. And they kept making more intricate more in-depth rules to follow. If you want to be right with God, you have to do this, but you also have to do this, this, and this. And after a while, it just becomes such a burden because how do I know if I've done enough? And Jesus says, hey, you who are weary under that load, come to me. I will give you rest. He's the narrow gate. Come to him in faith. Because rest is found in a person. Down in verse 29, he quotes from Jeremiah 6, verse 16. And reminds us that the entire Old Testament points to him. That rest is found in Jesus Christ. That once we come to him, we realize that I never can do enough to earn relationship with God. My grandma was a great cook, farmer's wife, born in Guthrie County, Iowa, on a farm, lived her whole childhood on a farm, married my grandpa at a relatively young age, 
Guess what? Moved to a farm in Adair County. Lived her entire life as a farmer's wife. Spent her entire life cooking. And oh, was she good at it. Oh, was she good at it. Every day, pie, cake, homemade bread. They didn't buy bread. I mean, it every day. That's just everyday life. What pie are we having today? Where's the freeze, strawberry freezer jam for the bread? Because it's warm. Let's eat it now. I mean, that was just life at the farm. And once in a while, I will step into a setting and I'll just pick up a little bit of an aroma that's similar to my grandma's kitchen and it just transports me there. We have quite a few of my grandmother's recipes. And once in a while, I'll ask my wife, Barbara, hey, could you make grandma's walnut cookies? Could you make grandma's sour cream chocolate cake? Could you make her noodles for beef and noodles? And Barbara will say something like, why don't you look at her recipe? And I'll look at it and I'll say something like, add flour. (laughs) How much, grandma? Or it'll say, season to taste. Well, that's helpful. With what? And how much? How much? And I'm convinced she had little secrets she always left out. Like Barbara tried to duplicate her sugar cookies. And they didn't turn out near as good. I made the mistake of saying that. (laughs) You learn a few things as you get older. And um, so Barbara goes back to my grandma Benton and says, Why didn't they turn out? And she looked at Barbara and said... Well, you put chicken fat in them, didn't you? No, I forgot the chicken fat. I mean, it's a secret ingredient. I mean, how much is enough? Don't know. It's undefined. Drives you crazy. And that's exactly what was going on here. And that's exactly what goes on in the heart and life of a person who's trying to be good enough to be right with God. You never know if you've done enough. And I would encourage you today, if you're in that category and if you don't know if you're right with God or not, today is the day. Because the penalty for knowing about Jesus and what he's done for you and knowing who he is and rejecting it is greater than the person who does not know that truth. That's sobering. Now there's a message here also. For those of us who are Jesus followers. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ. Because Jesus says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon me. And learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The rest that Jesus promises. Is not just for eternity. It's for now. And just like in this ancient Near East, often they would use oxen and they would have this piece of wood that would go over the backs of the neck of two oxen to pull a load. Jesus is saying, come co-yoke yourself with me and experience rest. That means walk with me, stay close to me, learn from me, emulate me. 
And I'm convinced in my life as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, when I am not experiencing rest, it's because I'm doing my own thing. And I'm not walking in a way that's totally dependent on the person of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit within me. And Jesus here is saying, you want rest that goes to the depths of your soul, that's not contingent on a place, not contingent on your circumstances in life. That rest comes in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. In him we find rest. We find rest from sin's burden. We find rest from the cares of life. When we come to the person of Jesus Christ in faith. If you're here today and maybe you're saying I'm still not ready. We have some material back in our prayer room. After the service one of our leaders will be back there. One of our elders. You can just say hey can I have one of those books that Pastor Steve was talking about. And in it there's verses you can look up in your own Bible. And, and read in your own Bible how you can know for sure that your sin is forgiven. And you're right with God through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to go back and ask for one of those. Father, we thank you for your word. And while sometimes it's sobering, it's also encouraging when we see the depths of Jesus' love for us and how he continually offers, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.